Registration is now open for ACRM 2021. Registering for our virtual annual conference gives you access to the content for over six months. That's over 400 hours of CME CEUs. Go to acerm.org slash register to check out the growing online program and see all of our great registration options. Welcome to the 37th episode of RehabCast from the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. I'm your host, Dr. Ford Vox of the Shepherd Center in Atlanta. We're talking about better modes of knowledge translation and spinal cord injury research with Dr. Heather Gainforth at the University of British Columbia and her colleague, Jocelyn Moffin, who manages the SCI Resource Center for Spinal Cord Injury, British Columbia. And then we'll sit down with Michelle Armour, who is Program Lead Clinician at Northwestern Medicine Aphasia Center at Marion Joy, and a big reason for that program's existence. She and other members of ACRM's Stroke Interdisciplinary Interest Group are formulating a variety of information education pages, and we talked particularly about their FAQ on aphasia. We have uh, Dr. Heather uh, Gainforth from the University of British Columbia. She is an associate professor there in the School of Health and Exercise Sciences. And we have Jocelyn Maffin, who is an, uh, a, a manager in the SCI Resource Center at SCI British Columbia. Uh, thanks, both of you guys, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having, for having us. All right. So this paper is on integrated knowledge translation. Uh, and specifically guiding principles for conducting and disseminating spinal cord injury research in partnership. Uh, so this paper is all about uh, partnership and having the key stakeholders involved, uh, everyone fully represented in spinal cord injury research. Of course, this has perhaps been a persistent problem throughout uh, for decades of, of medical research and that it's generally been rather paternalistic, maybe sometimes literally so, as in all from men, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> white men in particular, uh, and that has improved over over time. Uh, and this is a movement generally in, in medicine to uh, represent uh, uh, the interest of, uh, of patients, uh, consumers uh, as well, and the development of, uh, of research that is going to impact their lives, uh, hopefully uh, positively and participate in that. Um, and to me, it's kind of unsurprising that, uh, that you guys in, in spinal cord injury seem to be uh, taking a, a a lead in this a little bit. Uh, the SCI community has always been a very uh, activist uh, uh, community. I, I, I has been my general impression of rehabilitation over the course of years, perhaps dissatisfied with the extent to which they are involved, uh, but certainly looks like you're doing uh, good things to, uh, uh, to change that uh, potentially. Well, uh, let, let's kind of start with, uh, with square one. So this is uh, integrated knowledge translation is, is part of a movement, as, as you explained in your introduction. There's different types of styles uh, of bringing the, uh, the patient in. Uh, my first question for you is, is who came up uh, with, with this general concept? Uh, you mentioned that was a funding agency. Tell us about that. So in terms of the history of integrated knowledge translation, it comes from a, a long history of work in partnership research. So you'll hear lots of different terms used for partnership research. Sometimes you'll hear something like community-based participatory research or participatory action research. Integrated knowledge translation is, is a little bit different, but sort of fits within the same family. Uh, CIHR talks about it. That's the Canadian Institutes for Health Research. That's the first time, place we see this term um, as this idea of the 
uh, engagement of knowledge users, people that will use your research throughout the entire research process. Um, and they're a little bit different in some of those other spots where they talk about the idea of really ensuring that you have decision makers on your team, people that have decision making power um, and that actually get to influence how the research is done. Now, uh, this agency that you mentioned in, in Canada, do they link a, a particular success and particular grants to, to incorporating this, this method? Yes. So the Canadian Institute of Health Research has research grants specific um, to engaging knowledge users throughout the research process. And they're certainly not the only funder asking for that. I, time and time again, we're seeing funders within and outside of rehabilitation research asking uh, for researchers to meaningfully engage research users throughout the research process. And that's sort of a, a neat connection, too, is that this group took the CIHR definition of integrated knowledge translation and further even refined it. Um, so we had researchers and research users, people with lived experience of spinal cord injury, clinicians, community-based organizations on this group. And together, we defined a definition of integrated knowledge translation that worked for our group. And for our group, we defined it as the meaningful engagement of the right research user at the right time throughout the spinal cord injury research process with meaningful engagement being that you're contributing to and influencing a personal and socially meaningful research dissemination or implementation goal. And in that sense, we really wanted to highlight that idea of decision-making power that's important to you. Mm. Now, Jocelyn, you you are involved in, uh, you know, uh, I, I suppose the the community of, of folks with, with spinal cord injury as part of this research center. I, I believe y'all get what hundreds of calls a a month uh, and so forth. Was part of your role um, uh, bringing those folks into this process uh, as well? Absolutely. Um, I'm a person with lived experience spinal cord injury as well, and um, but I feel very strongly that um, the best or that a very uh, big contribution to research in the roles that I'm often invited to be in um, involves drawing from my experience at work and the many calls that we receive, the many questions that we get. Because I think individually, we can only represent our own specific type of complications or injuries. But um, any clinician around SCI knows how variable it can be. And, mm -hmm. and we like to be able to be a partner that brings in a bigger picture. Okay. Now, this is a process that ultimately settles on these guiding principles uh, uh, for conducting uh, this type of research going forward. And the process itself has to involve uh, the, the stakeholders or the research end users, uh, as you describe it. Uh, just in, in general terms, uh, how many uh, folks with, with uh, SCI are participating in, in this uh, you know, agree-to process and everything uh, uh, the, leading to the paper? Yeah, so we, we went through a long process of bringing our, our team together to actually create the guiding principle. So uh, in 2017, we established an initial core panel um, with approximately 13 individuals, or sorry, I got that wrong, approximately nine individuals. Um, from there, those nine individuals that represented community organizations, they represented research organizations, funders, 
um, SEI researchers, we wanted to talk about everybody involved in this spinal cord injury research system to make these principles. We came together, the nine of us, and we decided what what research was needed to actually rigorously develop guiding principles. So we used the appraisal of guidelines for research and evaluation two, or the agree to instrument, the same um, instrument that's used for several different types of guideline development, for example, the physical activity guidelines for people with spinal cord injury. Um, and from there, our, our initial team conducted uh, a review of reviews, a scoping review, a Delphi study, and interview studies to identify over 125 different principles that could be used to guide spinal cord injury research partnerships. Um, And we also aimed from there also to expand our team to be a larger group that could look at that data. So throughout the process, um, we got to a, a bigger team that eventually looked at all of that data, the 13 of us, um, and came to consensus on these final eight principles that really distills down those 125 principles for the spinal cord injury research system. And importantly, when we looked at the 125 principles, we didn't just look at principles that were used in spinal cord injury research. We also aimed to look at principles that could be used across lots of different um, research domains within and outside of health. Now, the uh, the knowledge translation, again, coming from a funding agency in, in Canada, like how long ago was that uh, f- uh, first uh, proffered or put forward to the research community there in Canada? And like how popular is it uh, generally? Uh, and Or to your knowledge, is this the first paper taking on uh, a process like this for a particular uh, uh, condition representing uh, researchers and patients? To my knowledge, this is the first example of integrated knowledge translation guiding principles um, specific to a particular group. Mm-hmm. I'm part of the Integrated Knowledge Translation Research Network um, that aims to look at how IKT is done across Canada and around the world Um, in lots of different domains, but this is the first paper coming out with clear guiding principles um, for a particular group that have been rigorously developed, Mm -hmm. and they build off of reviews. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's not to say that that research partnership is specific to the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, or that these guiding principles should only be used when you're, you're thinking of applying to there. I think that the idea of these principles is that anytime you're asking anyone with lived experience, anyone who is a research user um, to partner with you, to work on a project with you, to think about doing research in partnerships, you should be looking at these principles and thinking about how can I, as a researcher or as a research user, that's why we use the language of partnership. So partners are all responsible for these principles. How can we actually follow these principles in the work that we're doing? And it does seem, uh, and you, you guys describe well in the paper um, uh, as well, how uh, there has been this uh, type of, of involvement of you know end users uh, or uh, patients, uh, I guess not a word we're using very much anymore, but uh, stakeholders perhaps uh, as kind of tokenistic, i.e. Uh, some folks who were brought in uh, to give kind of in a premature an idea that they were involved uh, to say, 
only after the process or perhaps development of the original research idea, perhaps after all research is conducted, maybe just before publication or, or so forth. And this is very much the opposite of that. Exactly. I think Jocelyn can can speak to this okay. um, really well, but that was one of the reasons we created the guiding principles was that time and time again, I was doing partnered research in the work I was doing. And my partners would tell me that not every researcher was taking that approach and that they were feeling that there was a tokenistic approach being used. Jocelyn, I think you could expand on that better than I can. Yeah, for sure. Thanks. Um, in both in my experience at Spinal Cord Injury BC and um, and at iCord, I think it was rather it was sort of commonplace that end of grant KT projects would be uh, funded and held, and there were some really great opportunities there. But integrated knowledge translation or, or partnership was often a, a kind of left to the last minute or not not thought through completely. So we would see this sort of or tokenistic relationships or a very lopsided um, sort of benefit um, to parties involved. Many people I know with spinal cord injury would be asked to participate, but it would always be at the convenience of the academic team, understandably. But that means you're only going to get a very narrow um, range of experiences because those are folks who feel comfortable in that setting or who have time off work or, you know, that, that one of the guiding principles speaks to this really well about having um, a meaningful, uh, like a value to the partnership across the group mm. and across the partnership. And that's a, that was something that was often, I think, missing um, or, or maybe not fulsomely uh, uh, discussed or, or conceived. Um, and I think the guiding principles were a really great opportunity to examine different ways of, um, creating a starting point mm -hmm. for researchers, putting it more on the map that research partnership is possible. Just these things at the front of your mind when deciding how you're going to do it. Yeah, Let, let's get into uh, to some of these and, and talk about them in a little bit more uh, detail. So uh, the first principle is that partners develop and maintain relationships based on trust, respect, dignity, and transparency. Um, certainly, <clears throat> um, that that suggests or leaves implicit the idea that maybe that's not been the case in the past. As we were kind of discussing, maybe you know it's an afterthought and uh, and so forth. And uh, if indeed uh, and and full damage. <clears throat> uh, how do you how do you demonstrate or or have uh, uh, trust um, and uh, respect and dignity and, and transparency? Well, like, what's an example of, of a of a method of, of research development that uh, makes that evident? So, in terms of that first principle, uh, I do think exactly that that it really does speak to being the opposite of tokenism. Mm -hmm. So. When we talk about tokenism, we are talking about someone being asked to endorse a research project where they're given little control or say in how that works um, and their, their needs, um, their viewpoint, what is meaningful to them is not discussed. 
What often tokenism looks like, um, and I've heard these stories several times, is that your grant is due in a week. And you call up a person with spinal cord injury and you say, can you write me a letter of support without asking them, what does, what about my research program matters to you? Um, when I'm doing my research, here's the skills I have. How can I help? And within this, what's meaningful to you? And that means that doing trust, respect, dignity, and transparency take time. You need time at the front end before you start applying for your grant or as you're starting to design the methods of your research to actually build a relationship and maintain that relationship. It means that you are clear with people. You're clear in terms of the boundaries that you set around that. You're accountable to the partnership. Um, you are open and, and um, honest about what you need as the researcher and also what the research user needs to be able to come to the table and are very transparent about what the granting process looks like, where, um, where the funds are going, what the impact of the research could be, what the methods look like. Um, Jocelyn, can you think of other ideas around how that first principle really plays out? It is so integral to establishing the partnership, and that is why we put it first. Absolutely. Um, I think you hit on the one that comes to mind for me first is um, uh, letting your expectations be known up front. Um, because I know, and I think most people participating in uh, research more than once, have an understanding of the constraints. There are constraints, um, whether, for example, I don't know if a compensation or um, reimbursement is available or not available, just making that known up front so you don't invest time or energy on something that is not going to be a good fit for you as the either a patient partner or as maybe a clinical partner you know, you just need to be honest about that up front. And I think that creates a situation where everyone can be transparent about what they need or what they can bring and not feel that they have to do anything that's been asked at any moment. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, one example also to think about is people with spinal cord injuries have health complications. Things go up and down. And I think creating... Um, a transparent and um, clear expectation helps us as well as partners to say, hey, I might not always be able to be that every meeting, for example. And it sets that tone that everybody's a part of that transparency and, and clear expectations being known. Now, I wish we had the luxury of time to have a full conversation about all the eight principles. So I'm going to, I'm going to uh, read through some as kind of a, a group and ask a more general question. Um, uh, so moving on to two, uh, partners share decision-making. Uh, uh, partners are uh, fostering open, honest, and uh, responsive communication. And um, partners are recognizing, valuing, and sharing their diverse expertise uh, and knowledge. Uh, that's kind of two through through four. Uh, thinking about these, uh, this general trend um, uh, involved really in the meat of the matter, the decision-making and so forth, communication back and forth throughout the process, um, and uh, really looking uh, uh, to the research users also for, you know, their input, their ex expertise and knowledge, as well as, uh, as the folks, you know, perhaps with the PhDs behind their names and so forth. Um, 
that uh, it's tough to imagine, uh, frankly, this this type of paradigm for some stages of biomedical research versus others. Makes uh, I can see it more so for obviously uh, research that is involving human subjects uh, in various stages. A lot, a lot of uh, certainly rehabilitation related research, uh, research into um, variety of uh, equipment, research techniques, and so forth. But I'm curious, uh, do you guys uh, also think that this is something maybe your big biopharmaceutical company is to look at when they're talking about, you know, uh, compound, you know, XYZ that might improve the, the action potential uh, in a nerve cell or, or looking at, you know, rat studies or going to the next phase? I mean, do we need to be involving uh, uh, folks with SCI in that stage of research? So I think there's a lot of a lot of pieces to spinal cord injury research if we think about the idea of preclinical research, clinical research, um, rehabilitation research, and then I often call myself a community researcher instead of a bench or bedside researcher, a backyard researcher. Um, and all of us have different barriers to why sometimes the guiding principles will be hard to follow. Uh, for me, as a community-based researcher, I have different challenges that make these principles hard to follow as opposed to some of my friends um, that are doing bench scientists, science or, or preclinical research. And that's actually one of the reasons that our partnership really believes that the guiding principles are, are not enough on their own. So they are only as valuable as the implementation and support we give to ensure that researchers from all disciplines, if they want to use the principles, they can follow them. Um, and so that's why actually right now, this summer, we are interviewing researchers um, as well as research users to understand why are these so hard to follow? And in particular, our partnership has some really uh, key questions for asking more around the idea of our, our preclinical researchers. Do they need something specific that might be different um, from a community-based researcher or a clinical researcher who is often working um, with humans, um, real-world uh, uh, people, and in that, um, can, can we support them in a different way? That being said, when the principles were developed, we designed them specifically to talk about the idea of partners not to talk about the idea of a researcher or a research user. So you'll notice all our language tells you that partners are supposed to be doing that. And every partnership will look different. So if you're a preclinical researcher um, or a bench scientist, your partners on your grant might look different than my partners on a grant. And we talk about this at i often. So we say that a partnership includes researchers and research users. Research users are any individual or group that will use or benefit from your research. For a researcher that might be doing preclinical work, their research user might be a clinician. And speaking to that clinician um, or another researcher along that translation, translational pipeline and saying, okay, how can I meaningfully partner with you? And are there a few small changes I could make to my research study that would make this more meaningful? And are there times where speaking to people with lived experience would be valuable in this partnership? Um, and I think thinking about who is my research meaningful to and how can I help 
is a question that regardless of your discipline, um, you can ask yourself uh, and ideally create more relevant, useful, and usable research. Jocelyn, what are your thoughts on that? Because I think it's a big question that matters. Yeah, we. it just reminds me that that, that came up uh, several times during the the process that we all went through um, in order to come up with the guiding principles. And there were several people who, with experience in preclinical research, active preclinical researchers there. Um, and I think that's what informed the, the concept of these as guiding principles instead of rules, standards, uh, guidelines, because uh, research contexts vary and um, timelines vary. And I think nobody wants to prevent research from happening um, or, or stop it or hamper it. But to it's sort of a rising tide floats all boats kind of idea that when we um, put out some guiding principles and they get adopted, it becomes a more of a norm in, in this SCI research um, installation. And, and that we hope our um, really essential preclinical research partners adopt the principles that they can and that we learn over time how to make clinical research um, more partnership friendly or offer more tools. Yeah, I mean, certainly uh, meaningful clinical endpoints and, and so forth are often meaningful to, to the actual end user or patient um, are often not chosen by the pharmaceutical industry, as, as we know. And, and so anything more that we could do to connect them uh, to, to actual uh, folks out, out there in, in the world, world living with these conditions would, would be a benefit. So I could see that bleeding through over time being a great benefit, not just for SCI, but other, other conditions as well. Too many times it seems like uh, uh, a, a drug is in, is in search of a purpose. Um, perhaps necessarily so literally the way it's done with lists of compounds and running through all the different, uh, uh, literally in search of a, of a purpose. But when it's time for design, that phase three study and so forth, or even the, the phase two, uh, th that's when um, I think uh, more of this involvement is definitely necessary. Um, so uh, of the other remaining principles, um, uh, they are... Uh, um, the partners are, are flexible, receptive, and tailoring the research um, uh, that um, uh, partners can meaningful, meaningfully benefit by participating along the way, um, certainly for ethical considerations. Uh, and that would seem to be of a great benefit for a lot of this community-based research, all clinical research generally. Obviously, there are, there are IRBs, but um, beyond the IRB, there are issues um, in um, you know, uh, uh, access and uh, what this means for the healthcare system in general uh, and so forth. Um, perhaps with the Alzheimer's drug that seems on track to bring down the entire American healthcare system, mm -hmm. that would be something to have discussed along the way. Do we want to spend all of our money on this one drug versus all the other care that people with dementia uh, need and don't have in the United States? Uh, you could, I mean, you guys are in Canada, but I, mm -hmm. I think I think you fa are facing similar challenges there. Um, so, um, and then finally, uh, uh, respect the practical considerations and financial constraints, uh, 
of all partners. And I think you've referenced that a bit, um, certainly with the fact that uh, uh, there's going to be uh, fluctuations in the participation, perhaps, for a person living with a condition throughout perhaps the entirety of the study and so forth. There's limitations in what researchers can do necessarily to accommodate uh, everything that their you know, lived experience partners might want to be done in a, in a given study. Um, so a lot of a lot of important uh, concepts there. Uh, certainly, a lot to talk about. But I want to focus the conversation a little bit more on this implementation uh, aspect. Um, certainly, I guess it makes it easy if a funding agency is requiring you to do this. Um, but uh, what's a good reason for someone to to be uh, to be inculcating this in their research design, even if say you know it's not necessary for this NIH grant, for example? Mm -hmm. I think it's really interesting, especially with funders. They have been asking for a number of years for researchers to partner throughout the research process. Um, and time and time again, I hear from partners who are research users who tell me about that experience. Um, and that often we come with the best intentions to partner, but how to actually partner, what that looks like, how you do that with uh, a high quality approach, uh, is not so clear in the literature. And if you are a researcher that is embarking on your first or your 15th partnership, having some understanding or a starting point to have a discussion um, with people that you might be approaching, funders don't give necessarily always a lot of resources of how to do that. And I think the guiding principles can be used as a tool. We have that as a postcard on our website. Um, for you to actually have that conversation to say, how does how do we want to actually set up our partnership and what can this look like over time? And I think where the the reason or or why do all this quote extra work is often people tell me that partnership takes longer. It takes longer to partner. And I'm always a little baffled by that of, okay, why are people so nervous of partnership and why does it take longer? And I think it's because we get caught on the wrong end point in science. So we think that the end point is the publication. How can I get the research done as quickly as possible so that there is a publication um, and that, that and then we're on to the next thing. And instead, I think the endpoint that really needs to matter is about is about application and uptake and translation. And if your endpoint is uptake, translation, application, this process will likely be faster because mm -hmm. you will be designing research that is relevant, useful, and usable. Um, and you will be addressing some of those barriers along the way. And so it's worth it if you think about your time long-term, there's research to say that there is a 17-year gap between when publications happen and research is taken up, and it's a very small proportion of research that even gets on that continuum. And so if we can close that gap, that's the reason to think about doing this, as well, just basic humanity and respect for the people that we work with. Um, I think are really good reasons to think about this work. It's even interesting to think about the parallels between the way science has always been done with this kind of, uh, there seems to be some kind of platonic ideal of just one lone individual with this brilliant idea who's going to make all this happen on their own, some type of 
Thomas Edison. Meanwhile, Edison employed like thousands of people or whatever. Mm. But um, but this is the kind of the general concept. You know, I've got this precious idea that I came up with uh, all on my own. But then uh, compare that uh, to, you know, uh, a business, you know, capitalism and so forth. Well, there the consumer actually kind of matters. Uh, and you're, you're starting with the beginning about what the consumer needs and doing those focus groups and so forth. I mean, uh, and I think that if there's anyone who's really focused on the bottom dollar, it, it is the, the big company that is literally focused on the bottom dollar. And so for perhaps, you know, not thinking about that, 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 that end point um, of, uh, like, as you mentioned, uh, the, the paper is not the final thing. It is ultimately what consumers uh, want and need uh, and is going to benefit their lives. Um, so uh, it, this is what's done and, and other fields of, of human en- endeavor and, and science perhaps does have something to to learn from that and perhaps uh, re- restrain itself a little bit too much as like the darling dear artist. You know, you're not Van Gogh uh, that's going to, uh, you know, create this thing on your own. This is something that requires uh, a whole lot of people and those people certainly do include uh, those living with the condition. Can I mention something on that? Um, yeah. Uh, in our very internet connected world, I think we're increasingly seeing the power of groups of stakeholders and research consumers to connect to each other and to be self-informed and taught about um, research that has the ability to benefit them. One of our partners on this project was a group that became uh, NASCIC, which is the North American Spinal Cord Injuries Consortium, which created itself to have a louder voice in research and researchers like it or not are in, um, in this world now where they may be asked to share how their work might benefit people down the road or, or, um, patients or the community and with public funders, they have an existing, um, investment in that work benefiting the public and, um, and I think that that's something to consider uh, in terms of proactive partnership and new um, new researchers or clinicians going into this area to develop uh, those partnership relationships with a variety of stakeholders so that they are a component of your research process going forward and that you never have to have that oopsie feeling when um, a consumer group approaches you and says, "Like, what are you, what have you done for me lately?" And mm-hmm. um, and obviously that that sort of oppositional kind of approach isn't one that we would like t- people to have to deal with. The partnership approach gives that opportunity to learn what you just don't know as someone not living with a spinal cord injury or not being a an SCI clinician or you know nurse or any of those things. And, and I think we just don't know what we don't know. And this sort of inoculates us by starting out at the beginning saying, share with me your experience. So my research makes more sense in that context. Uh, so helps developing the knowledge, translating the knowledge, and disseminating the knowledge. You got a whole uh, much larger team of people there now that uh, you know once that paper does come out, are hopefully going to distribute it amongst their communities and uh, and so forth. Um, and you mentioned inoculating against criticism. Frankly, that's a big part 
of, of research nowadays. Any research that's, uh, you know, uh, getting the public eye to any extent whatsoever is can be thoroughly discussed and uh, digested on social media and so forth. Um, the more you've done your homework um, about um, who thinks what about these ideas and how they might be potentially used in advance, well, you've you've done kind of your your market research. You've you've actually determined what what the general response of the community is going to be uh, on Twitter and Facebook and the media and so forth and everything as well. And and you know uh, what the perhaps societal larger societal import or value of what you're doing is before you even throw it out there. Um, so uh, you know, hopefully, this you know younger generations, newer researchers out there who have grown up in the internet age and so forth are going to be uh, recognizing the value of that uh, in research, uh, kind of naturally going forward. But um, uh, very interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, guys, I think this has been a, a a great conversation about the paper. I encourage everyone to go actually read the paper in the journal. Um, and uh, I, I really appreciate the time of both of you guys uh, today and. Uh, 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 elucidating uh, these principles for us, and uh, and like as you as you say, uh, looks like it's uh, a method that uh, should be looked at by a variety of other patient research partner communities. Um, you mentioned specifically stroke, multiple sclerosis. I think as as other communities that certainly early on ought to be uh, similarly engaged from the rehab uh, side as well. Whichever you know, particular method, whether uh, uh, it's this form of knowledge translation or some of the others that, that you mentioned, definitely uh, partnerships uh, with uh, uh, end-user communities is uh, the the new theme of the day for uh, for clinical research, um, and and ought to be uh, for some of the reasons that we discussed at, at the beginning of this interview. Um, uh, medicine is. Uh, no longer uh, stayed and paternalistic as, as it has been in the past, maybe still is a little bit, uh, has a ways to go. Um, and uh, I think um, uh, research uh, funding uh, agencies are thinking in this, in this uh, direction generally. So uh, great work, guys, and I appreciate your joining us today. Thank you so much for having us. We've really appreciated having the opportunity to talk about our work and um, as well to and I think deeper about why partnership is so important for the research process. Yeah. And the interview is a partnership too. How about that? Yeah, absolutely. So joining us now on the Rehab Cast, uh, we have a member of the uh, Communication Disorders Task Force of the Stroke Interdisciplinary Interest Group of the ACRM. Um, and she is also program lead clinician at the Northwestern Medicine Aphasia Center at Merriam Joy. Uh, welcome to the rehab cast, Michelle Armour. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So you and uh, your uh, group, part of the ACRM, uh, have authored uh, an FAQ about aphasia, uh, specifically targeted towards the the rehabilitation professional. I gather perhaps everyone working in the Rehabilitation hospital environment, hopefully not an FAQ for the speech therapists themselves, <laughs> but uh, perhaps for for, uh, for everyone to know what's going on here, folks who aren't specially trained uh, in this area. Do I have that right for the target audience? That's correct. Yes, we are an interdisciplinary task force through the Stroke Eye SIG of ACRM, and um, some of our members um, that were physicians, um, psychologists, others in other disciplines besides our speech therapists had expressed interest in such documents. And most documents were 
kind of framed more towards patient and family and caregivers, but there, there weren't many that we could locate that were really framed more towards the rehabilitation provider. So we wanted to develop a document as a task force that really focused on high-level knowledge and skills and information that would be pertinent to a rehabilitation provider, despite what discipline they might be in. Yeah, and as folks get, you know, increasingly specialized and subspecialized and go off into the individual fields, it's easy to perhaps forget. I mean, there's there's folks uh, working in even the rehabilitation hospital environment from uh, all different angles, uh, uh, certainly from uh, uh, various clinical uh, backgrounds, but uh, more generalist uh, uh, nurses perhaps as well who haven't gone into uh, specialized yet in rehabilitation, nursing, and so forth, as, as well as all of the other aspects of everyone from the administrative staff and, and so forth. But a lot of these conditions, um, uh, you know, the average healthcare consumer uh, uh, doesn't understand certainly and needs education about it. Uh, but just because you work in a hospital environment doesn't mean that you understand every condition that's being treated in that hospital. I can say that myself as a as a physician. Plenty of uh, conditions for which I might need to be educated from from square one. So no one should have um, any uh, self consciousness, in particular, about the need for for an FAQ to get up to speed uh, quickly on what what's going on here. Um, and this is indeed a very you know friendly, open kind of from from square one type of, of document that should be approachable to to most people. Exactly. And just, you know, more details than perhaps are provided to the average uh, discipline outside of speech therapy. We included demographics um, that are very recent in recent data, um, you know, how aphasia affects an individual's daily life in terms of mental health, relationships, employment, um, things that, you know, may be very specific, as you mentioned, to the speech therapist knowledge, but not something that might be educated across all disciplines. So we were hoping it could be a straightforward document that would be helpful in any setting. And, and perhaps, you know, uh, you know, kind of upgrade the, uh, the compassion and empathy uh, aspect of this too, kind of informs folks about what the primary struggles uh, that we see of folks with aphasia are in terms of maintaining and having that social connection, the challenges with families knowing as well how they should communicate with them, kind of what the real work is there um, for the, the speech therapist to do with these patients as well. Exactly. Yeah. In addition, of course, we included the uh, the medical components. So the patterns of aphasia and the types of aphasia and the different errors that you might hear when you're working with those patients. So yeah, well-rounded, easy read, as you mentioned, um, and something that uh, is such a nice offering from archives of physical medicine and rehabilitation, just that format of an information education page that can be used in various settings. How do you uh, imagine these being utilized in a given uh, facility, like physically uh, on the wall somewhere or on fire or something handed out to, to staff at meetings or something or in terms of uh, kind of a, a general uh, uh, facility education training plan about what's going on here as folks are onboarding or how it could be incorporated? I think there's a lot of flexibility, um, which is a nice uh, attribute about this kind of document. Um, I envision it, and I think the task force kind of envisioned it as um, a printout, right? So we can print it out, we can provide it. If there is, like you mentioned, a nurse or um, a CNA or a physician who's who's asking a question about an individual with aphasia or just aphasia in general, um, we can print it out, we can hand it out to them, and it's a quick read and just kind of gives them that direct information, kind of a refresh on some of this uh, data and uh, 
just those those frequently asked questions that they they might be wondering about. It certainly does identify what the main challenge is, or one of the main challenges is for a person with with aphasia in communicating uh, and. Uh, Therein, also the, the caregivers and clinicians and so forth need to figure out how to aid that person in their communication. I understand that you have another uh, information educational page on that subject in particular on supportive communication strategies. Could you kind of give us an overview of what that looks like? Absolutely. So as a task force, you know, our main idea started with this aphasia FAQs document and in further discussions on our, our task force meeting calls, um, we got to thinking, you know, we can't really talk about aphasia without discussing supportive communication. Communication is always a two-way street. So really that the person with aphasia is, is, is one part of that, but their communication partner plays a key role in the success of their communication. So we collaborated again, a different subcommittee came together for um, the creation of the Supportive Communication for Individuals with Aphasia, IEP, that was meant to be a companion article for the FAQ document. Um, So we're very excited. It was actually published in archives in the July issue of this year, 2021. And that one, though, is kind of framed a little bit differently. That one we wrote so that it could be given to a patient, a caregiver, a rehabilitation provider, really the audience is is more general for that one so that we could reach as many people as possible in terms of the importance and um, resources that might be needed to provide supportive communication when you're interacting with an individual with aphasia. How often do documents like these need to be updated? That's a great question. You know, we tried to, we we used references that um, are very up to date. Um, in terms of the FAQ document, the demographics, you know, may change over time, um, but everything else is is facts. You know, they're, they're facts related to aphasia that are more concrete. Same thing with supportive communication. It's, it's not necessarily something that we anticipate needing updated. It should stand the test of time. Of course, there's always brilliant research coming out that could definitely add to strength in these documents um, as time passes. But we we wrote them in a fashion that we hope that they they can be used long term and can be a useful tool for years to come. Fantastic. Now, I understand that you are the the founder of the Aphasia Center at your rehabilitation hospital. Uh, have, have your imprimatur on it, given that uh, you obtained the the grant uh, to to kick that off. Is that right? My hospital specifically, yes, yeah, uh, we we opened about four years ago. Um, mm-hmm. We won a grant um, through our our healthcare system, actually through Northwestern Medicine, was supplied through Superior Ambulance Services, and we opened our aphasia center here at Mary and Joy. Mm-hmm. I suppose there's a lot more of these these uh, uh, information sheets that could be uh, uh, produced o- over time. Uh, do you all have uh, uh, others in the works? I imagine. We do. We have one more that's currently under review, so we're hoping that gets accepted as well. Um, after we created these two, we got to thinking about um, you know other opportunities and other needs. The main goal of our aphasia task force, aphasia and other communication disorders task force, is just to provide rehabilitation professionals with education. Right, try to connect. Um, the the rehab professionals with the individuals with aphasia as much as we can and support that interdisciplinary communication. So when we talk about aphasia, another frequent um, topic that gets brought up is the difficulty for individuals with aphasia at times to return to employment. 
So we do have another um, IEP under review that will discuss um, return to work for individuals with aphasia, should it get accepted. Um, and, you know, what the recommendations would be and kind of a, a pathway that can be taken when you're working with an individual with aphasia to get through from rehab all the way to back, you know, back into the workforce and what that would look like and what resources can be utilized. Fantastic. I would say another common question that we see clinically is uh, recommendations and advice uh, about different computer programs to, to use for aphasia or online courses and uh, and so forth. Uh, that might be another fruitful area in terms of obviously there are papers on such things and uh, review papers and meta-analyses and so forth. But from a practical kind of clinical uh, uh, advice and FAQ about the different types of consumer products that are seen out there that uh, uh, the patients and families might want to explore. There are. There are many different kinds and it really, um, it varies. So there's a lot of different um, applications that can be utilized for increased access for individuals to continue their practice from home. So more like drill types of practices um, as well as a lot of compensation software that's available. So, of course, aphasia can affect um, reading skills as well as writing skills. So there are different third-party keyboards, um, word prediction apps and softwares that can assist an individual with compensation for their written language, um, as well as alternative um, and augmented, aug augmentative and alternative communication devices. So just to help with communication in general, um, so it really depends on, you know, that patient specifically, what their personal goals are and what kinds of technology they're looking for to really help them in their daily life. Well, a, a worthwhile project. Looks like there's more to be to be done in this direction of uh, getting everyone educated, uh, consumers, families, clinicians themselves, and everyone in the rehabilitation hospital, perhaps medical centers generally can use these uh, uh, information programs as well. Um, Michelle, thank you for joining us on the RehabCast. Thank you for having me. And that's it for this 37th episode of the RehabCast. Don't miss the 2021 annual conference online from September 26th through the 29th. Tune in next month and please share the podcast with your colleagues.